Okay, so I have a question to start today off of with, okay? And this is, uh, you're just going to have to like personally navigate if you would define this or that underneath the question, okay? So it'll make sense in a minute here. How many of you have ever been an exclusive VIP to something? How many of you have ever been an exclusive VIP to something, right? You got in, whether it's backstage, got to meet someone, right? I personally, because of my brother, was an exclusive VIP to something that was pretty epic and awesome. My brother in high school, he was 6'4", 300 pounds. He played for Norton High School. He was the center. He was an excellent athlete. He was an excellent offensive lineman. And there were a number of college football scouts that were interested in my brother. And so he would get letters, coaches visit. Visit, he would go and have different experiences and things of that nature. One of the experiences he was invited in on was a Saturday at the Ohio State University to take part in a game and watch it and to kind of go through the whole recruiting at the Ohio State. And so he had two guests he could invite. So he invited dad, of course, because dad's going to help with decisions, right? Then he invited me, right? And at that point, I was married. I was out of college. And I, I felt like a kid at Christmas time when he invited me. I was like, oh, it's go time, right? I get to experience this. And so what happened is this. We traveled down to Columbus. It was like a noon kick kickoff maybe or 3.30 kickoff, traveled down to Columbus. We kind of got the lay of the land, and they told us at a certain time to meet them at X gate number, okay? And so at that time, probably 15 minutes before that time because we didn't want to miss the gate, right? We went up to the gate. We showed them our ID, and they ushered us into a building that's connected to the horseshoe. And it kind of is a tower-looking building, and they walked us in there, and they said, go up the stairs, and someone will meet you upstairs, and I'll walk you into the room. And so we walked up the stairs, and the whole way, you just see Ohio State facts and, you know, guys that played Ohio State up the staircase and all that stuff. You're like, oh, my gosh. Then you get onto the landing, and they walk you into a room that literally would be an Ohio State fan's favorite room of all time. It was just Ohio State stuff, helmets and uniforms. They were playing Ohio State uh, highlights on the TV, these big screens. TVs. They had all the numbers on the walls of Ohio State accomplishments and things of that nature. And then there's a buffet line, right? So you're like, this is the best. Well, you just going to stay in this room all day. This is amazing, right? And so we are there and we took a seat and they said, you can go get some food. So we went and got some food. We piled up our plate because my dad said so. He's like, if they're giving it to you for free, you get your whole plate filled, right? You do all that. So we get our plate filled up. My dad and brother, they go to town on the food. I literally, like I said, was a kid at Christmas. I couldn't eat. I was so excited for what was to come. I ate like a chicken finger and maybe some pasta, right? I couldn't eat anything. I was just so excited. About 30 minutes later, after coaches are mingling and they're walking around, they tell all the recruits, hey, you can go down to the field with us and you can watch the team warm up. I'm like, oh, my word, right? And so they usher us down the tunnel. We're walking down the tunnel, Ohio State sprints out of, right? And they get us onto the field. And I kid you not, I am feet, feet away from Ezekiel Elliott and Joey Bosa and Braxton Miller and all of these guys that are Ohio State legends now, right? And I'm standing there, I'm like, oh, this is the best thing ever, right? And I'm freaking out a little bit, taking pictures. I had thousands of pictures, right? And then after that, they're like, okay, recruits, the game's about to start. So they usher us through the sideline and up a little staircase into the second row at the 45-yard line, right? So all of a sudden, we have these epic seats at the game or watching the game. They destroy whoever they were playing. It was like Florida Atlantic or, you know, Massachusetts cooking school, whoever it was, right? And so they play, and then all the recruits after the game got to go out onto the field. 
We got to walk onto the field as they're singing the alma mater. We got to stand on the big O, and we got to interact with it all, right? And I just felt like an exclusive VIP. I was looking up at the grandstands. I was like, man, I used to sit up there, but now I'm on the field with the big guys, right? You just feel it, right? There's something about it. And then as I thought about it, I thought, I took a step back. I'm like, I wonder what it would have felt like for someone to watch us enter into that, right? For someone to look and say, why are they going in there? What are they doing? What do they know or who do they know to experience that? When we talk about things that are exclusive, oftentimes I think we come from the vantage point of who we are excluding. But today, I think what we're going to see is God wants to have an exclusive conversation with us. But it's not about excluding us. I ultimately think God wants to invite us in. And ultimately, through a conversation around exclusivity, he's going to give us the greatest invitation that you and I could ever imagine. We're in a series called What About? And we're just looking at the top four things that people give or top four reasons people give to have doubts or questions or disbelief about Christianity, God, Jesus, any of the sort. And what we're doing is we're just walking through, not necessarily trying to answer all the questions, but trying to form conversations. There are desires to come alongside of you and be able to process through maybe the questions and the doubts and the wonderings you have. If you've missed the first two weeks, we have a website that you can go on and you can get our podcast and you can listen to the last two weeks. It'd be really helpful. The four things we're talking about is first, last week we talked about science, okay? Science and faith and how those interact. Today, today we're going to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, and I'll explain that here in a minute. Next week, we're going to talk about hypocrisy, what that looks like and how to wrestle with that. And the last week, we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about what in the world do we do with those topics. And inside of this conversation, I started with this on week one. I said, we have to have a foundation for this conversation, because inside of a conversation like this, it can become very much us versus them, or it can be very much volatile, or it can be very tense, right? And here's the reality. I want to have a conversation with you. I want it to start here. And ultimately, you might be like, well, he has the mic, and I don't have the mic, right? How's this a conversation? What I want to do is I just want to open conversation, and let you process with me and bring questions to us. You don't have to agree with everything I say to come here or to engage with what we're doing. We often believe that you need to feel like you belong before you maybe even believe everything, right? So we want you to feel included in a part of what's going on no matter what experience you have, no matter what your background is. But we also believe that this conversation needs to come with a compassionate tone and a courageous truth. We're not going to shy away from the truth of what we believe here as Grace Church about Jesus, about Scripture, about God, and what life looks like. But we also want to do it in a way that is very gracious and kind and compassionate, understanding and loving to ultimately pursue understanding 
to seek to be understood and have conversations, listen and ask questions inside of that. And so we've tried to resource you guys the best of our ability. The first way we've tried to resource you is through this series guide. It's a little booklet. It's on our back wall. I would challenge you to grab one if you haven't. It kind of functions like a weekly devotional in between Sundays. It'll help you wrestle with these conversations Monday through Saturday. The second way is on our website. There's a page. There's a button there that you can click that says, what about resources? It's just online resources for you to engage books I've read, podcasts I've listened to, videos that I've engaged with, websites that would be helpful in this conversation. Then lastly, if you call Grace Church your home, if, if you're first-time guest here, you're newer to Grace, this is not for you. But if, if you are a uh, someone that calls Grace your home, you're invested here, my challenge this entire series has been, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to about your faith? Right? Even if you're a first-time guest or maybe you're newer, you can do that, right? But the challenge is, who are you engaging that maybe doesn't believe what you believe exactly? And how are you starting conversations in a compassionate and yet courageous way? This week, we're going to be looking at what about exclusivity, right? Really big word, really big word that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. But literally the word exclusivity inside of the conversation we're having, inside of this worldview, religion, Jesus conversation, here's what it means. It means to believe that there is one way to God or that there is a one way to eternity, okay? So there's not multiple ways, but there's one way to God or one way to eternity, and that is the only way there, and for some of us, we sit in these seats, or maybe we know someone, that this conversation can bring tension because maybe you sit there and you feel like someone who's around the Ohio State game and watching all the recruits and their families walk in. And maybe you, inside of this conversation, are asking questions and processing the what-ifs. Why can they say that that's the only way? What if there's another way? How do they know that they're actually right? right? Maybe you've had those questions. Now listen, whether you have been churched for a while or maybe you haven't experienced church in a while, maybe you believe in God, maybe you have questions about God, maybe, maybe Jesus is a reality to your life, maybe he's not. It don't matter where you sit, eyes up here, this is really important. All of us. All of us wrestle with this conversation around exclusivity. We do. All of us at one point or another or continually will wrestle with this conversation. It's a controversial topic because what this conversation says, what Jesus is going to share with us, is that he tells us that he is God. Jesus, man, claims to be God and at the same time, Jesus claims to be the only way to God. And that's the conversation that each and every one of us on a personal level do wrestle with, will wrestle with, have wrestled with, or at some point will wrestle with. Because it's a conversation that's not just us and them, or if you're a part of the church or not, that is irrelevant to this conversation, a claim like that forces anybody to wrestle with that. And here's why I think we wrestle with it. I don't think it's merely for fact alone. I don't think it's merely because we have questions alone. Here's why I think we wrestle with it. I think we wrestle with it because all of us at one point or another 
desire something greater, a home that is greater than what we have. All of us are looking for something beyond what we have right now. Now, here's the reality. Why is this such a controversial topic? Why is this something that brings up a lot of conversation? I think there's two reasons, and they're not on the screen, but they might be worth writing down. First is this. You need to understand we live in a society of options. We live in a society of options, okay? Here's what's important to note. We live in a society that has good, good options involved, right? If you're an Amazon shopper, you have been blessed by the options involved, right? You have a litany of different options, a litany of different things that you can plug into, right? We have restaurants all over the place that you can dive into. You have Uber Eats. You have TV streaming channels. There are options endlessly, which also means there are options spiritually, to your spiritual preference or your worldview preference. And often we live inside of a society with options with a mentality of you do you and I do me. That you choose what's best for you and I will do what's best for me. And we kind of function inside of that. Now don't get me wrong. Options are helpful at times, right? They're helpful when you, you have a menu in front of you and you have kids at the restaurant. You're like, I like options. Because the steak for 25, 30, 50 bucks... My son's not going to eat that, right? But here's the reality. Options can get dangerous at times because here's what I've noticed. Inside of those options is also a society of self. That not only do we live in a society of options, but what gets dangerous about them is we also live in a society of self. Here's the reality. Exclusivity and the idea that there's only one way to God or only one way to eternity runs up against the natural human instincts that you and I have. It runs up against the belief that there is someone outside of me that can change my life. And I think inside of this conversation, what we need to understand is we live in a society of self that ultimately trusts me inside of myself instead of anything outside of me. We live in a society of self that is all about my will and my desires and fulfilling that. And so when you match a society that has options with a society of self, ultimately inside of that, you can do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. And inside of having that kind of society playing out, what takes place is this, I just choose what I want to do no matter what is coming around it. And so why exclusivity is really challenging to our natural human instinct is because I want to sit in the seat of God oftentimes. I want to sit in the seat where I can have control, where my kingdom is growing. There's a Jewish philosopher who would say this about our times. This new religion could be detected in an increasing obsession with self with personal development and the preference of spirituality over religion, and with therapy over communion with the transcendent God. It was the elevation of self above God. We live in a society that is all about ourselves. We live in a religion or spiritual moment that is focused on myself. And so exclusivity, I don't think it's first and foremost tense because of, of facts and numbers and all those things. I think it's tense personally first for all of us. 
because we're told to live for ourselves, by ourselves, because of ourselves, with ourselves in mind. And this conversation about Jesus blows that out of the water. Doesn't give to that. And in a society of options and self, ultimately it doesn't mean more inclusion. What's funny is it means more exclusion. What ends up happening is the more worldviews that develop, the more exclusive the world becomes because all worldviews end up being exclusive. This is what Mark Clark from a book, Problem of Jesus, The Problem of Jesus would be well worth picking up. He writes this, Christianity is not the only worldview that claims exclusivity. Formal religions like Islam and Judaism also claim to be the only way to experience salvation. And when we really dig into the details, virtually every worldview is exclusivist. No matter where you sit inside of the conversation around what you believe, you believe in exclusive thoughts or idea. Christianity is no different than that. And here's the reality. It is exclusive because there's contradictions involved. There's contradictions involved. No worldview is going to match up exactly to another worldview. And so inside of that, as we look at the tension of it, as we look at the reality of it, as we look at maybe why it's so controversial, why do we wrestle with it so much? Why don't we just give into it? Why do we have so many questions about it? It's like I said. I think all of us, in one way, shape, or form, are trying to find home. No, not, not your earthly home. Right? If you need help finding your home, we are here for you, right? But your eternal home. There's something inside of each and every one of us, a hopefulness, something inside each and every one of us that longs for something different, something more, something better than what I have experienced here. And I'm not sure what to do with that. And so we look all over the place because we have this longing. And so we try to pour into it. And here's the reality. We're trying to look for something and maybe for some of us, we're not even sure what it is, but it's just different. And the reality is, what we would believe here at Grace is, there is a true home. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. There is a true home. But you and I, because of our sinfulness, the missing of the mark, our selfishness, in trying to put ourselves in the seat of God, are separated from it. You and I in and of ourselves cannot get to that eternal home because of how good I am, because of what I've done or what I've accomplished. But there's something missing, that we need someone to step in the gap for us. And that's why I love in John 14 where Jesus starts. Because there's a primary verse that we're going to look at here in a few moments. But he starts before that in John 14 verse 1. And Jesus is talking to his disciples Around a table, he's having dinner with them. It's called the Last Supper. You've maybe seen the famous pictures of that, right? And around the table, he just got done telling his disciples that he is going to die and rise again. Now, eyes up here. I'm not sure how many of you have been around a table having dinner before and someone looks at you and says, tomorrow I'm going to die, right? Just put yourself in that seat. Sometimes we kind of sugarcoat the Bible. That's not a normal dinner table conversation, or at least I hope it wouldn't be for you, right? That is not normal. So inside of what we're about to read, the disciples are grappling with what in the world is happening? What is going on? John 14. Jesus says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
Easier said than done, Jesus, right? You just told these guys that you're going to die and that you're coming back to life. That doesn't, what? What's going to happen? You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now listen, we're not going to dive into all of this passage. It might be well worth your time to do it on your own. I believe that Jesus is doing a few things here. He's encouraging his disciples, Right? Because they're like freaking out a little bit. They're like, where are you going? And what's going on? And what's happening? And you're going to die? And what's tomorrow going to bring? And what in the world just took place? He's encouraging them. He's like, I'm not leaving you forever. There's somewhere I'm going to prepare for you. He's also strengthening them, I believe, right, to face what they're going to face, which will be really hard after Jesus ascends into heaven. But thirdly, I think something interesting that we often don't look at is I think inside of this passage, and we're going to get to verse 6 and 7 here in a moment, Jesus, in the most profound and beautiful of ways, is inviting them into his eternal home. That exclusivity for Jesus is this great invitation into an eternal home with him. He's not looking at us trying to exclude, he's inviting his disciples and all those who will come after them into an eternal home. That's where this next passage kind of gets funny a little bit. In verse 5, after Jesus says this, Thomas, one of the disciples who I love, he's real skeptical. He's real questioning about things. He's like, I'm not so sure. He has a question for Jesus. He says this, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Like, thank you, Thomas, right? He's like speaking realism into this a little bit. He's like, you didn't tell, what's the address? Where's the place? The keys? Do we, do we know the person who's hosting? Like, what's happening here, Jesus? You just gave us some vague description. So how can we know the way? Now listen, some of us are here this morning and we feel like Thomas. We're like trying this Jesus stuff out. I maybe have been at church for a while. Maybe I, I know about God. Maybe I've read some things but I'm not really sure what to do with it. Or maybe you sit on this side where life has just been hard and it's just been messy and it's just been downright roller coaster, right? Up and down, up and down. It just doesn't make sense all the time. Some of you are here and you feel lost, kind of like Thomas. He's like, where are you going? What are, how are we supposed to know? What's the way? What's happening? So you feel lost. I think what Jesus would say is this, you're welcome here. For some of us, we have questions, like Thomas, like, oh, I got to make sure everything checks out, Jesus, before I kind of jump in. We got questions, right? And Jesus would say, you're welcome here. For some of us, maybe we have doubts. Thomas, one of his nicknames is Doubting Thomas. That's why I love uh, Thomas so much. He, he uh, just kind of relates so well to me. So you have doubts, I think Jesus would say, you're welcome here. You're welcome to run into whatever those doubts are with me inside of this conversation. What I love about Jesus is this. He doesn't shoo Thomas away. He doesn't come down hard on him. He doesn't scoot him off to the side. Jesus just answers him. This is what Jesus says in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I just want to do three quick points and then I'll close. The first one is this. Jesus is the way because he made his way towards us. Jesus is the way because he made his way toward us. Listen, Jesus is not a way, one of the ways. He's an option to the way. We here would believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, eternity with God, and eternal home. Jesus is the only way. And we would kind of uh, illustrate it like this. There's this graph that I want to throw up here. And on this graph, you'll see uh, kind of some different mountaintops and different vantage points. If you go to the very far, your right, uh, sorry, yeah, your right, my left, you'll see a bunch of little kind of mountaintops with different religious worldview, beliefs, things of that nature. That's often how we interact with God. It just is. Now listen, if you've been in church for a while, take off the lens of church. We all interact like this towards God. We all feel like we started a place where we got to start climbing a mountain, per se. The route that you choose to find home might have been through really good works, through really good deeds, through trying harder. For some of you, you... You stand at that mountain, the base of that mountain, you look up and you're like, I want to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure it out. And no matter how hard, how far, how much time you spend climbing, you can't get any closer to the mountaintop, any closer to the God of the universe. Because here's the reality, we can't. Inside of our sinfulness, inside of our messiness, inside of uh, what's going on in our life, we cannot make our way. There's not enough good. There's not enough, uh, enough things we could say, not enough church programs we could be a part of in and of ourselves to make it to the holy, all-knowing God of the universe. For others of us, we stand at that base of the mountain, and what we do is we're like, mm-mm, my life has been too bad. I've done too many stupid things. I've done this. I've done that. There ain't no way. So I'm just going to walk over here and do my own thing. No matter where you're at, that ends up not being sufficient. But here's the reality. Here's what's different about what we believe about Jesus. Is that God isn't asking us to make our way to him. He made his way towards us. That is what's different about our worldview in scripture and about Jesus than anybody else's, that the God of the universe loved us so much that he sent his only son to not condemn us, but to save us by coming down, being born as a baby, living as a carpenter, getting followers that he was teaching, and to ultimately live the life that you and I could not live, die the death we deserved, and rise again so that you and I could have life. That right here on the far left is the picture of Jesus coming towards us, making his way towards us. How do we know he's the way? Because he came and invited us in. Tim Keller, he's a uh, pastor, was a pastor, an author. He wrote this, Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral performance, wisdom, or value, but because of Christ's work, Jesus' work on their behalf. Listen, the right side says my value, my worth, my deeds, my, my goodness is what I have to bring. And what the gospel says is no. 
There's nothing that could amount to what you need to have a relationship with God. You are invited to see Jesus and run into him. We can't. So Jesus rescued us. Well, where do we see this invitation at? There's multiple passages. John, John 10, verse 9 and 10. This is what Jesus says he's talking. He's using an illustration. He's using an illustration here about being a part of his crew, being a part of his family, being a part of that eternal home. He says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is the gate that we must walk through. He's the gate. He's inviting us. It is this inclusive invitation to see Jesus as our Savior and only as our Savior. Here's what's fascinating about the way that Jesus chose to come and meet us. Jesus did not use his power, his prestige, his dominance to come prove that he is the only way. Jesus, his way was death. That ultimately Jesus showed us that he is the only way because he was the only one that made a way for us. Him being the gate means that he is the one not just opening the gate for us, he is the literal gate that we walk through as we say yes to him and his life, death, and resurrection, what he's done for us, that he invites us into that. And what's beautiful is this, Jesus is the most inclusive savior. Did you read it here in John 10? Whoever enters through me, will be saved. Whoever enters through me, whoever sees me as Savior, whoever enters in, whoever runs into life with me will have not only eternal life, but an earthly life that is lived to its fullest. Well, what's that mean for you and me? Well, it means that we need to choose if we're going to run into Jesus and his path and the gate that he is presenting or somewhere else. Jesus in Matthew, early on in Matthew 7, says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Here's the reality. Jesus recognizes there are options. Jesus, and we later see Paul write about this, Peter write about this, he lived around a pluralistic culture the Roman culture existed with many different gods that were worshipped in a lot of different scenarios that took place. Here's the reality. Jesus knows that there's a lot of options, and he's inviting us to choose him as the only one who can save us. Jesus, in his exclusive invitation, tells me one of two things, that he is the only one as the gate, that the narrow path means that there is a narrow way towards everlasting life, and it's through him and only him. But it also tells me this, that I have a decision to make, that the wide path might look real fancy and fun, but it leads to destruction, that if I am going to enjoy an eternal home with eternal life, there is a narrow path that 
he invites me into. What's that narrow path mean? What it means is this, that I am going to have to start living life following him, not living life for myself. That in choosing the narrow path, it means I'm giving up following my way of life for his. And that's really hard to do. Because that means that I might have to give up something about myself. I might have to give up what I enjoy, my comforts, my kingdom, what I used to do for the sake of following after him. Jesus invites us into eternal life. He loves us so much. He would invite us into eternal life with him. But he loves us so much that he would invite us into something better in this life. And oftentimes what is better means I have to give up of something of myself that is holding me from Jesus and following him fully. That if he is the way, I need to trust he's the way, not just for my salvation, but for my life and the decisions that I make inside of that life. And that ultimately the story of God tells me it's better than anything I could ever imagine. And so it starts there. He is the way because he made his way towards us. But he doesn't just stop there. He tells us something powerful. That Jesus is God. He tells us and claims to be God, which tells me this, that he is the truth because he is God. He is the truth because he is God. Now listen, I, I love this because we get two kind of perspectives. Thomas was, he was like, oh, Jesus, what's going on here? What's happening? I'm not so sure. And then we hear from this guy, Philip. And I love Philip too. Philip kind of has this comment towards Jesus. It says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Right? The Father, what he's referencing there is the God of the universe. They would have had a title of Yahweh, the holy God of the universe, the creator one that we serve and love, that they revered so much they wouldn't even use his name verbally. That God. Show us that God, Jesus. Now listen, some of us, we may not be Thomas, but we're like Philip. We've been following, we've been doing the church thing, we've been kind of interacting with Jesus, we're trying to do that. And we're just wanting a sign or something. We're like, Jesus, just show me what I'm doing isn't worthless. Just show me what I'm doing is right. Just show me what I'm doing is worth it. Just show me what I'm doing is the right path you want me on. Some of us are Phillips, and we're questioning God in a different way. Where is it? How do I know it? Where do I go with it? Jesus says this, and I love it. Jesus answered him, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus does not just speak truth. He is truth. Why is he truth? Because he is claiming... Jesus is claiming to be one with God, the God of the universe in human skin, 100% human, 100% divine at the same time. That's what he is claiming, and only through him is found life in relationship with the Father. But also, we see Jesus as truth, not just because he is one with the Father and claims that, but Jesus is truth because he rose from the dead. You can look that up in 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time to dive into it. But the fact is this. He not just claims that he is God, but he proves that he is God by defeating death and sin at the grave and rising again when no one has ever done that before. In Matthew 28, as he's ready to commission his disciples, 
to go out and do the work of Jesus on this earth. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Why? Dude rose from the dead. If, if you ran into someone that was dead and came back to life, you'd listen to them. Something would be different. You'd start to wonder. And so Jesus is saying, I am the truth. Now, what does this mean? Does it, what do I do with this? How do I run into this? I think he introduces it. I think what he wants you to do is run into him with it. My biggest fear is that with our beliefs and our faith, we base it off of feelings a lot of times. We internally process things, removing all external influence or facts inside of that. J.K. Chesterton, he says this, in the old days we were taught to be doubtful about ourselves and sure about our facts. Nowadays, we are taught to be sure of ourselves and to be doubtful about facts. In a society of options, in a society of self, we also live in a society that is built around trusting yourself and your feelings and what's going on inside of you instead of getting outside of you and wrestling with how that interacts with you in life. And what I think Jesus is saying is, Philip, I know the feelings may not be there, the tingly sensation, the butterflies in the stomach, the, the mental map that you were wanting, but if you were to hone into who I am, you would see the Father. Jesus is truth because he's one with God. He rose from the dead and proving to be God, and ultimately inside of that, he says, test me as truth as you run into relationship, questions, conversations with me inside of that. Do I trust him? Do I trust that he is that for my life. Then lastly, Jesus is the life because he laid down his life. Jesus is the life because he laid down his life. This is one of the biggest reasons that I find courage in believing what I believe is that if Jesus is who he says he is and did what he did, that there is no other view, worldview that matches up even close to it that the God of the universe would come down in flesh and do for us what we could not do to, for ourselves is unreal and crazy. Jesus even tells us who he is inside of John 11. He's talking to two sisters who just recently lost their brother. He's dead, he's in the grave. Jesus tells them this, I'm the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The one who believes in me will live even though they die. The one who connects their life to me, the one who says yes to me, is going to find life everlasting even though on this earth you will perish at some point. That there is an eternity to be run into and I am the way to it. And the fact of the matter is God so loved us, he gave his one and only son to die for us and not condemn us, but to save us. And in an effort of doing that in ultimately connecting to that, the reality is this, we can only experience true life through Jesus. And without Jesus, we're destined for eternal separation from him. But once I connect my life to Jesus, something powerful happens. An assurance happens. This is what J.D. Greer, he's a pastor, says, when I connect my life to Jesus, I say yes to Jesus. That means that God could not love me any more than he does right now because God could not love and accept Christ any more than he does. 
God sees me in Christ. God's righteousness has been given to me as a gift. He now sees me according to how Christ has lived, not on the basis of what kind of week I've had. Some of us, we question if God actually loves me or not. If God cares about me, if there is a God, if there is something out there, is there actually an eternal home? What am I, what's my purpose? What's my meaning? We would believe that the God of the universe loves you so much, he sent his only son to sit on that cross, to hang on that cross and identify as a sinner so that you, through trusting in him, can identify as a son and daughter of God. That literally what happened is when you say yes to Jesus, Jesus has taken your sin at the cross and through the resurrection, put it to death, put it away, and you get to wear his righteousness. So every day God sees you, if you are in Jesus, you trust Jesus as he would see Jesus. Every day that he loves you so much, that he cares for you so much, that he sent his son to die for you so much. Well, Joel, I, oh man, I really messed up over here. I really do this over here. Run to him. Because he sees you as he sees Jesus and he wants to hear from you that he loves you so much that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus is the life because he is the only one who has offered us life free at the cost of him. And for some of us, we've been trying to find a home and it's cost us a lot. And it's burnt us out and it's been confusing, and it's been a wrestling match. And Jesus is inviting you and saying, I paid for what you have done so that you can embrace life through me. And following him comes at a cost. Don't get me wrong. But it's so much better than the cost we pay doing it on our own. Three things I just want to leave you with real quick. I think inside of this, Jesus, first and foremost, invites us to come home because he took the cross. Jesus invites us home by taking the cross. Listen, I would believe that Jesus, Christianity, we don't do it perfectly, right? We don't do it perfectly all the time. But Jesus, I believe the perfect Savior of the world was the most inclusively exclusive person to ever walk this earth. Who's he invite to follow him, to run in to life with him? He invites those who are religious. He invites those who are on the streets. He invites the rich and he invites the poor. He invites someone who's struggling with addiction and he invites someone who's struggling because they're making so much money. He invites the person that is dirty and messy, and he invites the person that on the outside looks all right. Jesus invites everyone to come through him, and it's humbling because he doesn't just invite you to trust him based on anything and in, in just some words. He proved it on the cross. He says, trust me because I've died for you and I have made and prepared a home for you. If you walk through this gate, you will experience that. Every other path will lead to destruction. For some of us, that's the decision today, is to come running home to the Father who is waiting for you, 
and the Savior who has paid the price for you to be there. Acts 4, this is what we see Peter and John They're speaking to religious leaders. They say, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus entered in for us so that we could enter a heavenly home, him. You might be asking, well, how does that work? Well, first, you've got to understand, I believe that God loves you. Yes, he loves you. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've done this. I've done that. He loves you. He loves you. Yes, secondly, you've got to recognize sin separates you. Genesis 3. Our sin, our selfishness, our position of trying to be God and put ourselves in that seat separates us from having a relationship with him. Because we're trying to be him. How can you have a relationship with the God of the universe when you're trying to do what only he can do? And so he sends his son, Jesus, to rescue us from his life, the death that we deserved. He died and he rose again so that we could have life. If you're interested in saying yes to Jesus or having that conversation, we would say saying yes to Jesus means accepting you're a sinner in need of a savior, trusting that Jesus is the only one who can save you, and the rest of your life embracing, following after him in his way. We'd love to have that conversation with you after service, sometime during this week. If you're interested, let us know. Two other things, real quick, as the worship team comes up. I think... Secondly, Jesus invites us home by taking the cross, but Jesus invites us to pick up our cross. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is where it gets really nitty and gritty. Because we really like salvation, it's free, we like the gift of it. But the cost of following Jesus means that I am invited to get outside of myself and to become more like him. That narrow road will feel tense and tight and restrictive sometimes. It'll feel like, I'm not sure how to do this. And yet what Jesus is walking us into is better. That Jesus invites us in Mark 8 and numerous other passages to pick up our cross, follow him, deny ourselves. But he's doing that on the basis that he is God and we are not. And that what he has set up is better than what we could ever imagine. The God of the universe decided to come into this world to save us. And then he invites us into walking with him on the rest of the time we're on this earth. If I can trust God with my salvation, I can trust God with how I live my life. And the decisions that he lays out for me. And the ways that he invites me to live life. If he is gracious over here, then he's going to graciously invite me into something better. For some of us, this conversation, I have to look at my life and say, what's the cost? What what do I need to lay at the feet of Jesus? What are things that are holding me from following Jesus truly as the Savior of my life? That is an ongoing journey, by the way. From the moment you say yes to Jesus till you're like 99, 100. It's just an ongoing journey of becoming more of him and less of you. Lastly is this, last thing. Jesus invites us home by taking the cross, invites us to pick up our cross, and he invites us to love people where they are at and take them where they need to go. Invites us to love people where they're at and take them where they need to go. Here's the reality. This conversation is not one that we can use against people, beat people against the head with the Bible, Use it as a way to self-promote. 
is a conversation that needs to be run into with compassionate tone and courageous truth. One that pursues loving Jesus and loving others. That as you talk to people, my hope isn't, I got to prove my side right and their side wrong so I feel better about myself. Or I got to prove their side wrong so that they know they're in the wrong. I got to prove to them that they are this or they are that and it becomes an us versus them. Because listen, truth devoid of love is irrelevant. Our hope is not that they would see we're right and they're wrong. Our hope is that they would see the greatest invitation that you and I have ever experienced is offered to them. Through the God of the universe coming onto our planet as a baby and growing up and running into the cross and into the grave so that you and I could have life not just for 80-some years on this earth, but for eternity with the Savior and King of the universe. If we, if we in these conversations don't pursue loving someone, taking them where they are at, to where they need to go, we've missed the point. It's not about if I'm right and they're wrong. If that's what they leave with, then we've missed the point. We need to make sure they see Jesus inside of us. So, Father, you are good. You are great. You are the God of the universe that we humbly are sitting underneath. Your grace and mercy has run into us in ways that we cannot even comprehend or understand. The fact that we are breathing air and living this life is a miracle nonetheless. But what's even more powerful is that Father, we praise you for the gift of Jesus. We didn't deserve the gospel. We didn't deserve the good news. We didn't deserve a savior, but you stepped into our world and decided to save us when we were dying. So Father, I pray over this room. Pray that your spirit would just hover. Grace and mercy and love and truth would just sink into our hearts and our bones. And Father, would you challenge us to run into you? We glorify you here because you are our God and you are good. We praise you for all this. We pray this in your name.